So, welcome. It's good to be back. I was gone a couple of weeks. Well, I was gone one week, and then we had an off week with the holiday. So, I hope everybody had a good Fourth of July. I uh, hope you enjoyed having my friend Chris. He was he is one of my dearest friends, one of my closest colleagues. He's actually on the board of Disciple Dojo, and couldn't ask for a better guy. So, uh, I called and said, "Hey, got an emergency. Uh, can you fill in?" And he said, "Absolutely." So. He's a good, good dude, um, and a good Bible teacher, too, knows his stuff. He's gone to India with me and taught over there, and so I, was, I knew you guys were going to be in good hands with him here. Um, <clears throat> he probably told you, but if you weren't here, it, my mother's mother passed away uh, two weeks ago. I think it was two, two weeks ago, so I had to go down for the funeral. Uh, she was about to be 86. She and my granddaddy had been married for close to 60 years, I think. Um, no, much longer than that. Close to 70 years. I can't remember. I have to do the math, but I'm an art guy and we don't do math. But she, uh, it, it, was, it was a blessing because she lived to see all of her grandchildren, except this one married, and, lived to, and, and all of them that are married with kids of their own. So she knew all of her great-grandkids. And that's a blessing that we all can hope for. She died. She was in the early stages of dementia. Her mind was starting to go, and it was going to get really rough over the next few years. So God spared her all that. She had always prayed that she would die in her house, in her bed, in her sleep. And she died in her house, in her bed, in her sleep. So <clears throat> it, was, it was bittersweet. Um, I preached the funeral. My dad, my dad and I preached the funeral. He's a pastor too. And then my cousin's husband, who's also a Gordon-Conwell graduate, he did the uh, graveside service. So it was family was involved from beginning to end. Yeah, it was a family affair. And uh, so she was crazy. We'll miss her. Um, but I, the, the, the message that I gave was on the hope of resurrection. And her faith in the Lord was, was everything to her. So it was, I knew that she wanted her funeral not to be a sad, somber affair, but to be a time where we really told people about the Jesus that she uh, lived her whole life for. So it was really cool to give that funeral. I actually put the message on the podcast website. So if any of you are interested in a sermon, what the Bible says about resurrection and hope that we have, and, and even through the grief of death uh, that's very real, we've talked about that. So... It was, it was good. I was glad, given the circumstances, it was as good as it could have been. So thank you all for your prayers, for your support, uh, encouragement, hugs, well wishes. It means a lot. Let's go to numbers. Last time I was with you, about three weeks ago, the, we've just lost two of the three leaders of Israel. Aaron and Miriam had died in chapter 20. Now we're in the, 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 the corner is turning. All right. So in periods of history, they're never neat delineated periods, right? You have one generation, then you have kind of this weird in-between time before another generation is fully recognized. Like even right now, I just read my generation is called a micro-generation. Everybody between, born between 1977 and 1984, I think, somewhere in there, they're called Xennials, and they're not Generation X, but they're not Millennials. They're us. So the, the, the criteria that I heard in the article was they grew up analog and they uh, went to college digital. <laughs> so it's like this, so I'm in this weird generation where I span both. Like I remember the stuff in the 70s a little bit, 
definitely the 80s, but then technology doesn't creep me out either. So it's this kind of hybrid generation. Well, this is something of what's going on in this period that we're in. Everything from Numbers chapter 19 through uh, to chapter 26. Chapter 26 is going to be the hard stop beginning of the new generation because it's going to start with a census, which is how the book began. So it's like definitively chapter 26 will say, this is the new generation. But between that time and where we are now, the old generation is dying out rapidly, including their leaders. So it's the passing of the guard, and there's this transition time in numbers. And it's got a little bit of both generations. See, the first generation that came out, they're not going to enter the promised land. Except for Caleb and Joshua, they're going to die in the wilderness. The second generation who grew up under them, seeing their mistakes and inheriting a lot of their uh, shortcomings, are going to experience that. But they're going to also experience a little of their parents' Rebellion, you know, you, you grow up like your parents. The more you hate your parents, the more like your parents you become. Uh, but particularly, you just, your parents rub off on you. That's part of being raised. So this generation, the new generation that's going to rise up, is going to have vestiges of the, private, uh, the prior generation. But not the full-scale rebellion that their parents had. Not the adamant, high-handed sin that their parents participated in. And we'll see that starting in this chapter. Chapter 21 says... Now, this is to recap, Israel has come out of Egypt. They've spent a year at Mount Sinai. They've marched up to the Promised Land. So they're down here in what would be around Saudi Arabia, kind of the Sinai Peninsula, depending on where you place Mount Sinai. In that region, the march is straight up to Israel, into the Promised Land, Canaan at the time. So they march to Canaan, but when they get there and they send the spies, the spies say it's awesome, but it's scary. So all of Israel rebels. They try to kill Moses and Aaron and go back to Egypt. So God says, all right, you're going to wander for 40 years. Every, a year for every day your spies were in the land and still rejected the promise. You're going to wander and your bodies are going to die in the wilderness. So they do that, and they wander, wander, wander all over. We don't know where they go. Archaeologists are never, you can't pinpoint because there wasn't GPS back then. All of the place names, almost all of the place names are guesses, including Mount Sinai itself. So you have to look at this, you have to approach it with loose hands in terms of history, archaeology, and the, the fine point details. The general picture is they were in that area for a generation, 38 years, give or take. Finally, when they're ready, God says, all right, now you're going to go in the land. You're going to march around. You're going to go through this um, Edom, which is down in the south. And then you're going to go up the King's Highway, which is in modern Jordan, into the Promised Land. You're going to come in from the east. So they do that, but Edom, last chapter we saw, says no. You can't come through our territory. So instead of fighting Edom, because they were not one of the tribes that God was using Israel to judge, and God doesn't just give carte blanche to Israel to attack whoever they want. There are specific nations that he is enabling them to defeat as judgment on those nations. So he says Edom's not one of those nations. So they go around, way down, and then they have to come back up. So they have to take a long detour. So then when they come back up, now they're ready to march north on the King's Highway and go into the Promised Land. But... This, when they get to uh, Ammon, in the place of the Ammonites, they run into what we come to this chapter. Uh, chapter 21. When the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, Negev just is the wilderness area, that desert, heard that Israel was coming along the road to Atharim, he attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. Then Israel made this vow to the Lord, If you will deliver these people into our hands, we will totally destroy their cities. 
the Lord listened to Israel's plea and gave the Canaanites over to them. They completely destroyed them in their towns. So the place was called Hormah. Now this contrasts with the previous generation. The previous generation, think back in chapter 14, they tried to take the land, or, or they were going to go to the land, and God said no. Or they, were, they said no. So God said, uh, fine, I'm not going to lead you. So then they said, okay, okay, we'll go, we'll go, let's go. So they tried to attack the land, and they were beaten down all the way to the place called Horma. Horma is of a noun form, it just means destruction. It comes from the verb haram, which means to dedicate to destruction. So Horma means totally destroyed. So the first generation tried to go without God, totally destroyed at this place called Horma, which is down in the south. Now, fast forward 30-something, almost 40 years later, their offspring come and they don't go of their own accord. They say to the Lord, they take a vow and they say, basically, God, go with us. Let us do what we should have done all along. Because these are part of the peoples who are being judged. These are parts of the, the people of the Canaanites. So God says, okay, He goes with them. And when God goes with them this time, Horma is still Horma. It's still destruction, but it's not destruction of Israel. It's destruction of the peoples that Israel is waging war against. So it's a flipping of the script now. This is one of those echoes of a new generation. Things are, things are starting to look up. This generation's starting to get it. But there's still some vestiges that remain from the previous generation. Now before we move on to this next section, I want to give some background because it's going to come up repeatedly especially when we get to Deuteronomy and in Joshua, the concept of this word where it says we will totally destroy. The NIV says totally destroy. I don't know what other translations say. It doesn't matter. The verb is haram. Haram. It's where the word harma comes from. Haram is an act of war that was practiced in all of the cultures of the ancient world. When you went to fight a battle, you did not go in and win the battle and then leave because those people would remember that and you did not want that nation to rise up against you later so what you would do this is ancient warfare everybody did this Assyrians Babylonians the, the uh, people in the ancient Near East anywhere when you went in you would totally destroy the city you would level it you would take captive the young and the women, and you would put to death all of the men of fighting age, which is as low as around 13 years old. You did that to prevent them from being the next generation of enemies that you'd have to come back and fight again. Now, it's, it's ancient warfare. It's terrible. It's violent. It's bloody. There were no Geneva Conventions. There was no United Nations. It was, there was no army. There was no peacekeeping force. It was kill or be killed. Um, it was very... I've been... So this is a side note that will relate, I promise. My side job, some of you know, is an artist. And I do artwork for different uh, companies or different people. So there's a company called Tops, and they make trading cards, like baseball cards and stuff. Well, they also make cards for TV shows and other sports. So I've done different things for them. I've done some Star Wars stuff for them and some UFC fighters and stuff. So the last job that they gave me was for the TV show called The Walking Dead. Now, I, don't watch, I never watched The Walking Dead. I, I thought it was just a show about zombies, and I don't really, it's just a boring thing. I don't get into zombie stuff. But I had to do this set of these cards. So I was like, all right, I have to draw people from season seven of this show, so let me just get on Netflix and watch season seven. 
So I did that, watched it so I could understand the characters, so I could draw them accurately and blah, blah, blah. So when I was watching it, I was watching it and realizing, hey, this show isn't really about zombies. They're kind of the backdrop, but this is about what happens to society when everything crumbles and people have to survive. That's what the show's about, and that interested me. So I went back and watched the early seasons, and I'm up to about season four now. And there's some cool biblical insights. I just posted one on Facebook a couple of days ago. Uh, like overt biblical references, like Bible verses in the show. But regardless, what I noticed about the show and what got me interested in watching it is it is about when society collapses. And, and you see these characters go from like upstanding, before this happened, they were, you know, police officers, doctors, preachers, all kind of, they just normal people. And then when society collapses, you see them, the change that happens when they have to survive and there's no one that's going to come help. And they're not really worried as much about the zombies as they are about the other people who are vying for the things like water, food, shelter. So it's a really interesting study, but it is very much like what the situation in the ancient Near East would have been. Because in the show, you have these, these bad guys that happen to be these charismatic personas that rise up or are elevated to leadership and through an iron fist, control these communities of people in this post-apocalyptic world. That's exactly what it was in the ancient Near East. So the people, when you read about the king of Arad or the king of uh, King Og of Bashan or, or King so-and-so, that is exactly what it is. These were ancient Near East strongmen. They were warriors. They gained influence. They rose up in power. And they controlled people with an iron fist. And these were the cities. Don't think of cities like Charlotte. Think of like like centers of power, and the people in the ancient world who were mostly peasants would either farm or they would raise animals for those cities. And the deal was the king owns all this land, and you work this land, and in return for you working the land, the king will let you and your family at night come back inside the city gates and live in safety. In the morning, you get up, you go out, you work the land again. The king gets the produce, you get to live, and you're in a secure city, protected. That's how it worked in the ancient world. So when it talks about this city and its outlying areas, or this city and its vicinity, that's what it's talking about. The city and the agricultural land that that city controlled. So that's what Israel now is going into. They are wandering into, or actually marching into a land, into a whole area of the world where that's how things are run you got a strong king who's a warrior king and his territory. You want to go in that territory, the king has to say yes. If the king doesn't say yes and you go through, he sends his army out of the fortified city to attack you. So cities, this is important. It'll come up later because people will read accounts that says, and they put the whole city to the sword, man, woman, and child, whatever. Cities in the ancient world were primarily where you went for safety, but they were the center of military power. That's the main thing about these cities. Some translators and biblical scholars, when they come to the conquest accounts, they actually say, you know, city is not a great translation because, again, we think city in our English sense. But the Hebrew word ear, which was the word for city back then, today, if we had to describe what those cities were, we would probably use terms like garrison, like a place where, or a fort. 
That's the concept of these various cities. So when we get to language in the Bible that starts to sound really horrible, and you imagine somebody coming through like Rock Hill or Charlotte or Gastonia and just blowing up houses and killing everybody and burning things down, that's not the image. The image is there's a fortified area. That's the stronghold of that king. That's what's being totally destroyed. That's what's being razed to the ground. R-A-Z-E-D. Raised. Destroyed. And that's why when you do archaeology, today, cities have layers. Literally. You, over the centuries, as one city, let's say Jericho. You've got Jericho, and it gets destroyed. All right? Wiped out. Well, there weren't caterpillar bulldozers. There weren't cranes. There weren't even wheelbarrows. How do you rebuild? You pile on all the rubble and all the rocks and you smooth and you level everything out and you move some here and you, you just level it. So actually the city becomes leveled. That's kind of what we mean when we say something got leveled. Then you build on top of that. And you live in safety until the next time the city is attacked. And it gets destroyed. Then you rebuild. And you build on top of that. So these are called tells, T-E-L's. And a tell is a mound. Over the centuries, it becomes a mountain. And you can actually, the cities rise up. So if you're an archaeologist and you want to dig Jericho, you don't go to, like when you go to Jerusalem today, and they say, this is the spot where Jesus prayed. Well, it's about, yeah, 20, 30 feet down below you is actually the spot. Because that's been paved over many, many, many times. And that's what archaeologists do. That's why they dig down. So this is, we're, we're going to look at one more section and then we'll do the rest of the chapter next week because it's broken up into two. But it's important, these concepts are important to keep in mind, especially when you start getting into the conquest passages. Because the first thing we like to do is read those and go, oh, that sounds so horrible, that's so barbaric. Well, one, yeah, by our standards today, it is. Even by New Testament times, it's a fairly barbaric standard. But remember, this is the world into which God is reaching to take a people out of that and to lead them to a place where they then will be a light to all the nations. There's a redemptive trajectory of what God's doing. So he takes this people that are in this warlike, ancient Near East setting, Wild West, you know, where might makes right, and he takes them in that land but he's going to not leave them there. He's going to draw them. He's going to make them be a people that point to something better than all of that. So it's really important when you're reading the conquest narratives to keep that in mind and to keep in mind the military language because it's, it's talking about military battles and this was how military accounts were written in the ancient Near East. We have passages that talk about from other cultures about them doing these type of things to other cities. And we know that it wasn't literal. They didn't literally do that to the cities because there are clear examples. So later, I'll give you one example. It says uh, God led Israel and they destroyed Jericho and put to death everybody that was in it. Well, we know that that's not true because we know of one woman and her entire household who were spared. Her name's Rahab. She went on to be in the line of King David. We know that there are, example, there are counterexamples. So the language is hyperbolic language when it comes to these conquest narratives. So you can't press for a crass literalism. This isn't the same as saying, oh, it's just made up. No, it's not made up. This is literary conventions. When we say the Panthers 
got destroyed last week. Do we think that that stadium got blown up? No. We all know what that means. It means that somebody brought a ball across the line more than the other people did. But in our minds and in the way we talk, we'd say they got destroyed. When a comedian gives a great performance, he says, oh man, he killed that night. That's how comedians say they did good. They made people laugh. It's literally the exact opposite of killing. You don't laugh when you're being killed. It's the way our English language works. Well, biblical Hebrew is the same way. There are conventions and there are literary motifs and markers and figures of speech. So when you get to the conquest narratives, keep that in mind. You can't just read them as if they're being written by a modern newspaper writer. Because they're not. Okay, we've got enough time. Let's cover this last part, of, or the second section in this chapter. Uh, verse 4, actually, before we read it. Think of the most famous Bible verse in the history of the world. What is it? John 3.16. There's not even a question. John 3.16. Everybody knows that there's something called John 3.16, even if they can't quote it. Most of you can quote it. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Do you know what verse comes before it? Like right before that? Right in that second. John 3.15, that's right. <laughs> right before that. Jesus says, let me not make up what Jesus is saying. Let me actually read what Jesus is saying. He's talking to Nicodemus, member of the Sanhedrin, a Jewish leader, religious leader. And he says, I'll start in verse 14. So John 3, 14 and 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way, He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Did you know John 3.16 is the second part of a comparison? Right? It's the second part. It's the thing that's being compared. So John 3.14 and 15 is, is the protasis, and then this would be the apodosis. I can't remember. I think that's right. I don't know grammar that well. But the point is, Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, this is what he's talking about. Numbers 21. Listen. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this desert? Here's that remnant of the old generation coming into play. There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. That miserable food was manna. The word miserable is, it means contemptible. Like they are like, not just, oh, I don't like the taste, but like, I am, this is beneath me. I am sick of this. This is, a, this is the miraculous food that God's providing them. So, God's response, verse 6, the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, or fiery serpents is what it literally says. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. So the first, here's, here's the, the interlinking. Like their previous generation, they complain and they speak against God and Moses. But unlike the previous generation, as soon as God's judgment comes, there's genuine repentance here. And this is the first time that they've acknowledged we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and Moses. They actually fess up 
own their repentance and then plead to be saved from their predicament. Take this away from us. So, Moses prays. God's response is interesting. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake, put it up on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can see it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. And then that's the end of that section. Then they move on. Such a weird passage. Obscure passage in the Old Testament. And it's disturbing because it seems like magic. This seems like a primitive thing that other tribes do, not God's people. God said, don't make graven images. And then he tells Moses, make this image of a serpent. Now, here's what's going on. A few things to note. The first commandment doesn't say you can't make images. It says, do not make graven images to bow down to and worship them. That's what it prohibits. So all of your friends who talk about Christmas trees are idolatrous and any church building that has a cross in it or whatever is, you know, you get these people sometime and they, they try to say we're, we're primitive. We believe the Bible. Well, they don't read it that carefully because it doesn't say you can't have images. God's, not, God's cool with images. You can't worship images. And actually, later in Israel's history, in 2 Kings, you will read about this very same serpent who by that time, over the centuries, the word for serpent is Nachash. And by that time, this is going to be this serpent in the temple that Israel is going to be worshiping, and they're going to name it Nachushtan, which is the serpent god or serpent king or whatever. And the king of Israel at the time is going to have to destroy this thing that God said to make because by then it had become an idol. The very thing that saved them had become an idol by that time. But that's much later in the Old Testament. More interesting than that, though, is there's no magic involved. There's no incantations. There's nothing that a priest or someone has to do to counteract this venom. Now, this was in the ancient world. That's how it worked. You would, there, there were these types of rituals where if, if you got bit by a scorpion or stung by a scorpion, you would do something involving a scorpion. You'd either eat it or you'd look, there'd be an image of it or an idol of it and something and it would counteract the venom and you'd do an incantation, blah, blah, blah. You see this. It even pops up in the Bible among the other people sometimes. The Philistines do something like this when they get sick for your plague. Uh, and it involves rats and so they make these little mice and whatever. The, but that's not what's going on here. Because all the people do, says, make it, put it up on a pole. They look at it. If they look at it, then they're saved. After they're bitten. It doesn't stop them from getting bitten. The snakes are still there. These, whatever they were, some people said they were probably either the carpet viper or the puff adder, because those are the two most venomous snakes in that region. Maybe. Um, whatever it was, this saved them from the effects of God's judgment. The judgment was not removed. It remained so long as anyone spoke against God or continued in that way. The, the effects of that remained. But there was salvation from that judgment. So the last point that we'll make, why would Jesus pick this of all the images to use? It seems weird. It's such an obscure passage and it doesn't seem to make sense. Well, if, well think more about it. This makes much better, better sense when you think about it. What bit the people? Serpent. So what are they looking at? Serpent. They're looking at the very thing that's their punishment. They're looking at the thing that is their judgment. The thing that they are being saved from is the thing they're looking at. 
What is Jesus when he's lifted up? What was he lifted up on? A cross. What's a cross? What's a cross? A cross is a Roman execution device. A cross is the ancient electric chair or hangman's noose, lynching pole. That's what it is before the cross ever had any cool meaning that we give it. So when you're looking into the cross, Jesus is picking this because he knows, he's telling Nicodemus, the whole way that God's going to work out this salvation is by lifting me up. But the lifting me up is going to happen as I take on the punishment of, that, that, that all the world deserves. All the world deserves the death sentence because of sin and rebellion as a collective and individually. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to be that. So the thing that Christians worship, it's profound. No one in the first century ever would think about wearing a cross around their neck. It would be like walking around with a hangman's noose around your neck. You would never do that. But that's exactly what happened. Because the very thing that was the judgment, the thing that, that, that people were being saved from, is what they looked to. They looked to a crucified a man, ground up and crushed under the empire of Rome in collusion with his own people. So all of the world was guilty. They looked to the very thing that they want to avoid, which is that death sentence. And looking to that in faith, that's paradoxically what saves them. So it's actually a perfect image. I mean, go figure, Jesus picked it. <laughs> but he knew what he was talking about. Our problem is that we don't know the first thing. We don't know the story. We don't know the bronze serpent story. None of us do in-depth Bible studies of Numbers chapter 21. So when Jesus says it, we fly past the first part to get to John 3.16. But it doesn't make sense without John 3.14 and 15. Jesus is saying something in that. That everyone stands condemned and people will need to look to Him. You don't look to the serpent, you die of your snake bite. You don't look to the cross, you die of your sin. It's just how it is. So in that, it's a really cool image, but it depends on us knowing the events in this chapter. So next week, we're going to finish the chapter because Israel is going to go and, and we're going to be moving into the new generation. Things take a turn for the better next week. After the judgment, there's victory. And that's what we'll see. So come back next week. Uh, take these cards. Give them to people. Give them to coworkers. Let's get more people subscribed to the podcast, more people watching YouTube, and more people in here eating this good food. We'll see you guys next week.